0: Amen. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 7. I'll read through the end of the chapter. Once again, chapter 3, starting in verse 7, and then we'll go through the rest of the chapter. Uh, before we begin, just a reminder that... Uh, Our envelope wall uh, out there in the foyer, this will be the last week that that's out there. That is a support to our team of uh, youth that are traveling to Denver here before the end of the month is out, uh, where they will be trained uh, and come back armed with a strategy of how to share the gospel with their unbelieving friends and family. If uh, you were hoping to give towards that, we're asking that you get that in uh, today or in in the subsequent days um, here. Uh, We're very blessed and thankful for those of you who have already supported that trip. We have seen an amazing, uh, actually, return, and we're looking forward to sharing with you a little bit about that next week and celebrating with you. Um, Next Sunday, we're actually going to bring the team of students and some of the adult leaders up as well. Uh, so that we can pray for them uh, as next Sunday will be their last Sunday before they leave on the trip. And so I invite you to come back and join us as we pray for this team together uh, as a church body as well uh, and celebrate what the Lord has done already um, through your amazing generosity. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, my, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, it is a joy to have you with us. And if you have a few minutes after the service, it would be a joy to uh, meet you. And so feel free to come up and say hi afterwards uh, when our time is done together. Um, let's go ahead now and turn to God's Word. Uh, let's read through this together. You can follow along as I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Paul writes, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Dear Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you reveal your glory to us? Would we gaze upon your face and be transformed as a result? We recognize that in our original sinful state, our ways are not your ways, and our mind is not your mind, and we need to be transformed into your image. And we praise you, Father, that for many this morning, the veil has been removed, and there are no longer any barriers that keep us from experiencing your transformational presence. Would that happen this morning, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fragments of broken stone slabs laid sprawled across the ground. Moses, who was burning hot with anger, had just dashed two stone tablets against the earth. Engraved on the tablets was the law of God written by God's own finger. And what once represented this covenant, this agreement between God and his people was now shattered in pieces. In a symbolic fashion, these broken pieces of stone pointed to the heavier reality that such a covenant between God and his people was broken. They had received God's law, which was designed to bring the Israelites into holy alignment with God. And the Israelites promised God, not once, but twice, that they would follow all the words of the law and be obedient to him. But as Moses descended from Mount Sinai, After communing with God and receiving the Ten Commandments, he witnessed the stiff-necked people of Israel worshiping an idol that they had created by their own hands. Israel's rebellion against the very God who delivered them out of Egypt now provoked wrath from him, which they brought on themselves. Such a punishment was only averted when Moses, as a mediator, went to God on behalf of the Israelites and pleaded with God to spare them. And in a surprising turn of events, God shows mercy and grace to the Israelites in that Moses had found favor with God. Now, Moses wanted proof from God that he had found favor and that God's presence was with him as, as he led the Israelites into the promised land. And uh, so he asked God to reveal his glory to him. And God told Moses that Moses couldn't gaze at his face or his very presence would kill Moses. But he did say, Moses, uh, when you come to Mount Sinai tomorrow, there is a cleft of rock. Stand in the cleft of the rock and and I will pass you by and I will cover your eyes with my hand as I go. And you can't see my face or it will surely kill you. You will surely die. Uh, But you can see the afterglow of my glory. And so the next day, Moses travels up to Mount Sinai with a new set of stone tablets And sure enough, God does as he promises. He shows Moses his glory. And it's here in this moment that that God forgave the Israelites and pardoned them from their sin. And he did this because he is a merciful and gracious God. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then God chiseled another set of 10 commandments and renewed and restored this covenant, this agreement With the Israelites, as Moses came down from the mountaintop, his face, unbeknownst to him at the time, was radiantly reflecting the glory of God. So much so that the Israelites were actually scared. They were terrified. They were afraid of God's glory because they knew where they stood with God. And they knew as a rebellious people that they would be consumed by God's very presence. And so Moses put a veil over his face in order that the Israelites would not be destroyed. And after that, every time that Moses would go into what was called the tent of meeting, he he would meet with God, and the veil would actually be removed in the tent of meeting. And then Moses would come out, and his face once more, having met with God, would glow and reflect God's glory, and the veil would have to be put back on continuously over and over and over again as Moses communicated God's word to the Israelites. Now, although this covenant that this agreement was restored, it was not restored without monumental consequences. And the consequence was the veil. You see the veil over Moses' face, it was an act of mercy towards the towards Israel because they would have been consumed by God's glory in their sinful state. But at the same time, the veil was also an act of judgment because there was now a barrier between them and the transformational glory of God. The veil, as one author puts it, preserved them from being destroyed, but kept them from being transformed. And they remained a stiff-necked people, incapable of keeping God's holy law because of it. That story that I just shared comes directly from Exodus 32 through 34, those chapters. And I would encourage you over your time this week, maybe to uh, go back and read it, to gain a deeper understanding of it. The reason we started there this morning is because it is, it's the foundational basis of the claims that Paul makes here in 2 Corinthians 3. Unless we understand the story in the context of Exodus, we won't understand 2 Corinthians 3. I want us to remind us all the context of 2 Corinthians right here. Remember that Paul is right in the middle of defending his ministry. He's writing out a defense of his ministry. He's writing out a defense of his own legitimacy as a minister, right? He's writing out a defense, if you will, of his message, the new covenant, this new agreement between God and his people. And he's, he's writing to them so that they would know the validity of the ministry and know the validity of God's work through Paul and know the validity of the new covenant. Paul wants them to know that his work is not void of purpose, but there is actually great glory in it. Really, Paul wants the original reader to see and experience the glory that comes with the message of Christ, the glory of this new covenant, this new arrangement between God and his people that has been established in Christ. And what better way to reflect the glory of God in the new covenant than comparing it to the glory of God in the old covenant? This, this is how Paul starts our passage in verses 7 through 11, by, by implementing a form of logic. It was actually a popular Hebrew form of argument that we would call the lesser to greater argument. The lesser to greater argument is a line of logic that says that if, if something less likely is true, then certainly uh, something more likely will be true as well. Right, Whatever can be affirmed for the less can be affirmed with more force, with more of a punch, with more emphasis for the greater. I'll give you a modern day example uh, from, our, from this time, from our generation. Uh, back in the 80s, Life Cereal, the Life Cereal brand actually used this form of logic on all of us in their own marketing campaign. You, you, you had this four-year-old boy named Mikey, in the commercial, who wouldn't eat anything, because he was such a picky eater. But wouldn't you know, to our surprise, Mikey takes a bite, and he likes it. Hey, Mikey. And so here's the line of logic. If Mikey, who is picky about everything he eats, will eat and likes and enjoys this healthy and nutritious cereal, then any kid would. Then my kid will eat it, right? Right? This is the line of logic that Paul, Paul uses here, the, the lesser to greater. And he uses it in three specific examples in Moses' ministry. He says, first, if, the, if a ministry of death came with glory, then certainly a ministry of the Spirit would have glory. He's saying Moses' ministry, it had an amazing glory, so much so that the Israelites couldn't even stare at Moses' face because it radiated the glory of God. It had to be brought to an end, basically, meaning we didn't see the full expression of God's glory there. It had to be brought on an end. Moses' face had to be covered. It had to be veiled or they would have died due to their hardened hearts. That's how much glory it had. Yet, this is why Paul calls it a ministry of death. We touched on on it last week. The law being written on stones as an external code has no life-giving power because it is outside of us and it is foreign to us. Such an agreement between us and God requires us and require the Israelites to follow all the rules to earn our favor, if you will, from God, to earn our merit. It required us to be good enough, but we can't be good enough. We can't follow God's holy standards because our hearts are hardened just like the Israelites. Therefore, it becomes a ministry of death. It leads to death. But the ministry of the Spirit, now that gives us the power and the ability To live up to God's standards. One of the main differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the presence that we have available to us in Spirit empowerment. In the ministry of the Spirit, the law, still relevant, is not written on external tablets of stone, but written on our hearts. The Holy Spirit takes out our old heart of stone like we talked about last week and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. Moses' ministry distributes death. Paul's ministry distributes the spirit. And so if Moses' ministry that distributes death came with such glory, then of course, a ministry that distributes the spirit, that distributes life, if you will, will certainly have glory. Paul continues along the same line of thought in verse 9. Second, if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, then there must be glory in the ministry of righteousness. The ministry of condemnation, it refers to the effect of Moses' ministry among Israel. The verdict of Israel, if they were to stand in a court of law, was guilty. They were lawbreakers. They stood condemned. But we know... That in the new covenant, this new arrangement with God and his people is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who trust Jesus are not guilty. They're actually declared innocent. They they are declared righteous in the eyes of God because God doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. We actually take on the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul says, if a ministry that left people condemned has glory, it's accompanied by God's glorious splendor. How much more glorious is a ministry that declares people innocent? And then finally, Paul writes in verse 10 and 11, if a ministry which was brought to an end came with glory, how much more glorious is a ministry that is permanent? A proper way to understand this is that Moses' ministry of glory, as the commentators would write, the Old Covenant was rendered inoperative. This used to be the agreement between God and his people, and that agreement was replaced by a new agreement, a better covenant, the writers of Hebrews actually says. So the Old Covenant was temporary in nature, But this new arrangement, this new covenant is permanent. Paul says, God will never go back on this agreement. He will never change this agreement. There will never be any kind of amendments to this agreement. This is a permanent fixture into all of eternity. And so Paul says, if the old covenant, which was rendered inoperative, which was temporary by nature, had glory, Then, what does that tell you about the permanent nature of the new covenant? Certainly, it is glorious. Now, it's important for us to understand here that Paul's purpose in these verses is not somehow to discredit or undermine the old covenant, to undermine the ministry of Moses in this passage. Quite the opposite. As a Jewish man himself, Paul would hold Moses' ministry in high regard, and, and, and even here preaches to the glory, the great glory that accompanied the Old Testament. Now, Paul's purpose, though, is to say that in light of that glory that was shown in the Old Testament, the Old, not the Old Testament, excuse me, the Old Covenant, glory that had the, the, the power to consume the Israelites, in, in light of that, imagine the type of glory that's shown in the New Covenant. Once again, Paul is defending his his ministry. There are people out there that say, Paul, you are are suffering and you are weak. And and so your message is is weak. There is no validity here. And, and, And Paul says, no, see how God reveals his radiant beauty through this arrangement with mankind, which I am preaching. Look at the glory. And then Paul takes this knowledge that there is great glory in the new covenant and he draws some conclusions here in verses 12 through 18. Paul says, this is where my confidence is. This is where my hope is. Paul has such a hope in the new covenant, which is spirit-filled and leads to life. Because of such confidence, he is able to preach boldly, right? Paul is able to speak freely and openly. Like Moses, Paul is a messenger of God, but unlike Moses, Paul can preach with an openness and a freedom that Moses couldn't. Moses had to put a veil over his face. There was a barrier between God's people and his glorious presence. But because of the glorious nature of the new covenant, Paul is free to be open and forthright. And then Paul goes into this veil right? A powerful illustration, a powerful metaphor. He goes on to explain that the veil over Moses' face was just the beginning. This literal veil over the face of Moses actually points to a greater veil, a more prominent veil, a figurative veil over the Israelites. And it's specifically a veil over their hearts. And for Paul to say that there is a veil over the human heart actually informs us to the nature of the veil itself. Paul describes what the barrier is. In Scripture, the heart represents the innermost self. It serves as the center for all spiritual activity in the first century. And so for Paul to say that there is a veil over the heart suggests a darkness of the spirit over your own spiritual activity. You see, with this, we see that the problem here, the veil is not just an intellectual ignorance to the gospel but rather a moral aversion to it, their hearts are set against god ultimately it 's our, our our sin that creates the veil it 's our immorality that creates the veil it 's not as if some people um, so, have some sort of cognitive inability to understand because they 're missing out on some kind of secret special mystical knowledge. It's not like the new covenant uh, has some sort of secret message that's only to be unlocked by a select few that gain spiritual enlightenment. No, it's not an intellectual problem, primarily. Primarily, it's a moral problem. Yes, their minds are hardened, Moses, or Paul says, "There is a callous that has been built up between them and God. Yes, there is an ignorance, but the ignorance is birthed because their heart is veiled. They don't want to understand. They have no desire to understand. For the Israelites, what Paul says is the veil is over their heart. When they read the scriptures, they have no idea that the Old Testament, that the Old Covenant was really pointing to Jesus. They don't understand because they don't want to understand. And this is a big problem. There's a barrier. And so what does it take to remove the veil? Paul explains that the veil remains unlifted because it is only through Christ that it is taken away. Once again, here's the logic. If the veil is present as a result of our own sin, then the only way to take away the veil is to do something about our own sin. And we can sit here and say, I've got this and I'm gonna try and clean myself up. I'm gonna try and clean my life up. I'm gonna try and become a better person. But ultimately we fall short. And we look nothing more than the Israelites did. When we try to remove the veil by our own merit, we can't do it. It's impossible for us because it's only in Christ that the veil is lifted. As Paul preaches time and time again, the only remedy to our sin is Jesus Christ. Without Christ, the presence and the power and the penalty of sin is still on our hearts. And it's only the work of Christ on the cross that the veil can be removed. And so this is what Paul explains. Jesus makes it possible for the veil to be removed. But what is the actual process of removing the veil? According to Paul in this passage, it's actually the Holy Spirit that removes the veil. Because of what Christ did on the cross, we now have access, if you will, to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in our sinful and veiled state pursues us. Now, important here. We don't pursue God in our natural state. How could we? Because there's a veil over our hearts. We can't. No, the Spirit pursues you, and He calls on you to turn to Him. In our original state, we are walking down a sinful path, ignorant to God and His righteousness and His ways, and we are pursuing our own ways and our own desires. Yet as you walk down the path, The Spirit calls your name. And what does Paul write in verse 16? It's the one who hears the call of the Spirit and turns to the Lord. It's the one that was going their own way and turns their attention, turns their posture towards God. And that is when the veil is removed. This is what we would call repentance. It's a changing of the mind. It's a changing of direction. It's it's to renounce my old way of life and my old way of thinking and embrace this new life. It's to renounce everything I've done in the past for my own desires and my own way and turning to God's desires and God's way. It's to say that my life was against God and I had no intention on following him but now I have seen the glory of Christ and I have heard the glorious voice of the Holy Spirit and I will respond. I will now walk towards God in his ways rather than running away from them, which I have been doing my entire life. I was not capable of pursuing God but before because there was a veil over my heart, but now the veil is removed because I responded to the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord, is. Paul says, there is freedom. There's freedom. Now, that's a very interesting word to come across in the text, coincidentally, here on 4th of July. When you hear the word freedom, you think of independence and freedom from some sort of of oppression, but let's be careful not to read our own culture into this here. to, to apply what we're celebrating today to this passage would do the passage a great disservice. Paul's not referring to the political and social status of being free, like we'll celebrate today. No, the freedom that Paul speaks to here is specifically in reference to freedom from the veil. We have been freed from the veil. There is no longer a barrier between us and God's glory. There's no longer a barrier between us and his presence. We are free from any and all barriers that would keep us from God. We are free from anything that would impede spiritual understanding. We are free from anything that would hinder spiritual growth. And that kind of freedom is a freedom that only Christ can bring. No other person or politician or nation or army can bring you that kind of freedom. That kind of freedom is in a league of its own. And it's far greater than any freedom that you could ever have. And that right there... Such freedom is actually a reversal of what we see in Exodus 32 and 34, through 34. We are no longer like the stiff-necked Israelites who were once shielded from God. Instead, we are actually like Moses in the story. Moses was the one who would commune with God in the tent of meeting. And every time that Moses would go into the tent of meeting, the veil would be removed. And with the veil lifted, Moses would see the glory of God and the glory of God would actually change Moses' appearance. Moses' face would reflect God's glory after coming out of the tent of meeting. And Paul says that the same thing happens to us spiritually. Spiritually. As we, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of God, we are transformed into the image and likeness of God. Paul says we are being transformed. There is a cause and effect relationship here. The cause is that by the work of Christ, the Spirit removes the veil. He removes the barrier. The effect of that though is that we behold the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, and we are transformed into His likeness. Just as one who goes up to Presque Isle on a sunny day and experiences the sunburn because of their exposure to the sun's UV rays, our exposure to God's glory will burn His image ever deeper into our character and our will and our soul. We call this sanctification. And sanctification and salvation go hand in hand. They are intrinsically linked. If you are truly saved, then you will be sanctified, cause and effect. You will be transformed. And Paul gives us the key in being transformed. Do you want to be transformed? Then gaze upon God's glory. It's the only way. It, it's the only way that we can turn from the sin in our life is by looking not at ourself, but to the glory of God. The only way that we can accomplish the job at hand, the task at hand that God has called us to is by looking to the glory of God. The only way that we can understand the scriptures is by looking to the glory of God. And this is why the sermons that we listen to should not be primarily focused on us and who we are, but on who God is. This is why the books that we read should not be focused on what we are to do, but on what God has done. This is why the songs that we sing should not be about us and our own experiences, but on who God is and His glory. Everything that we hear and read and participate in should be God-centric because God's glory is the only source of true transformation. The worst thing we can do as Christians, the worst thing we can do as believers in the Christian journey is to look at ourselves rather than look to God, look to Jesus and his spirit. And it is a journey. It's a long one. Paul here speaks to the progressive nature of our transformation. It doesn't happen all at once, as if by a magic wand. Over time, you will begin to look less and less like your old self that was veiled, and you will look more like Jesus, but it doesn't happen overnight. For Paul to say that we are being transformed from one degree to another here in verse 18 is to say that we are actually encountering an ever-increasing glory over time. We are in a constant state of being transformed. And the longer we have seen God's glory with unveiled faces, the more of God's glory we will experience. We will experience the more that we will be transformed. C.H. Spurgeon puts it so well and eloquently when he writes that our knowledge of Christ is somewhat like climbing uh, one of the mountains. When we first believe in Christ, we see only a little of him. The higher we climb, though, the more we discover his beauty. The longer we walk with unveiled faces, the more we encounter an ever-increasing glory. Transformation by and large occurs over the long run, over the constant and consistent exposure to God's glory, which is why our consistency in God's word is so important, because that's where transformation happens. Yet despite this, some of us look for what we would call breakthrough. We want to experience breakthrough, and we may assume that God is not at work if there isn't breakthrough. And don't get me wrong, breakthrough can happen. But in reality, more times than not, the Spirit will transform you over the course of a long period of time. As you see yourself in a mirror from day to day, you notice very little difference in physical change. But when you pick up a picture from your youth of many years ago, you look at it and say, my, have I grown? In the same way, this is true of spiritual transformation. It may be one sermon or one conversation or one passage of Scripture that the Spirit uses to lift the veil from your heart. But it's the thousands of subsequent sermons and passages It's the thousands of instances that you faithfully gaze at God's face after the veil is lifted that will transform you over time. And so be consistent and be constant. And I promise you that you will experience transformation. But none of that will happen until you respond to the Spirit calling your name to turn your direction and your attention toward him. And so do you remember the day that the veil was lifted from your heart? Do you believe that Jesus' work on the cross, through his work on the cross, that there are no more barriers keeping you from God's glorious presence? If you don't, then pray for God this very moment to remove the veil. And I promise you, he will. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. A freedom uh, that goes far beyond and greater anything that we could ever hope and ask for here, Lord. A freedom to know you and to love you and to pursue you having been saved. And I pray, Father, that should there be anybody here who still has the veil over their heart, that your spirit uh, would call on them and lift that veil in this moment. And I pray, Father, for the ones who have been faithfully walking with you over many, many years and decades that you would continue to transform them, Lord. And we trust, Father, that there will be a day when we experience the fullness of your glory and we will be transformed. Father in the in the blinking of an eye Father, we will experience a, the ultimate transformation where our bodies themselves will be glorified and we praise you and we anticipate that day and in your holy name I pray amen